Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. This morning is kind of substitute Sunday. The band who have finished this recording had asked for permission some months ago because they knew they would be very tired. And let me tell you, if you don't know the work they put into this, come and talk to me sometime and I'll give you an earful. It was very, very difficult. They asked for permission to be gone this weekend. They're up in Michigan relaxing and praying, and they should be worshiping somewhere this morning. Uh, But I just want you to know where they are. And then Pastor Bailey and his wife have flown the coop, and they've gone to Mexico. Did he do any work recently that merits him going to Mexico? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. So um, we should have prayed for them. I should have prayed this morning, and I just it, it didn't uh, pray for them, that they'll all rest, that they'll have a joyful time, and that they'll come back to us refreshed for more work. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26, if you would. We're going to continue, continue in uh, the series of sermons in the book of Matthew that Pastor Bailey's been preaching. Last Sunday, he preached about Jesus in the garden with the disciples, praying as Jesus was finding the resolve at that last moment, praying that prayer of, Father, if, if it's possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the disciples were sleeping, if you remember. And this morning we take up with Jesus finishing his prayer, coming to the disciples and uh, saying, Okay, time's up. Things are changing. Come to a, a passage of Scripture that is a pivotal place for several people. And I'm going to concentrate on the disciples, but I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about Judas a little bit. But let's read together Matthew 26, 26, verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss... He is the one, seize him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, (coughs) excuse me, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? As you would against a robber. 
Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. If you read the other gospel writers by the Holy Spirit, you see much the same story. Two of them record the disciples fleeing in fear. Occasionally there are other things added in. But what I want to do this morning is talk about the characters in the narrative one by one. There are basically four groups of characters, characters or groups of characters that I want to talk about. But spend most of the time talking about the disciples and what was happening with them. I want to start with Jesus. As I said earlier, he had just finished his prayer in the garden. He would committed himself to the will of his father and the cup of suffering. And he goes and he greets his betrayer and he greets the mob. He greets Judas and he actually calls Judas friend, which is the only time I could find in the Bible Jesus directly referring to somebody in a conversation as friend, which is an interesting thing. You have to see Jesus saying that and it's kind of a loaded term. And Judas hearing it, knowing what he was in the process of doing and receiving that from Christ. And you'd almost rather be uh, one of the commentaries I was reading talked about the fact that uh, Jesus referred to um, Judas as friend, but he actually at one time referred to Simon Peter as Satan. Do you remember that? And you think about it and you think... You'd much rather be in Simon Peter's place at this point and not be called friend in this way with what was happening, with what was being accomplished at this time. So Jesus meets him and he, he uh, is greeted by his betrayer. The mob comes up to him. And as I said, Jesus at this point has his resolve. He's ready. He's ready to take the cup. And so there is a, a moment here where Jesus is presenting himself to his enemies. It's a pivotal moment. He hasn't been in the hands of his enemies up till this time. He's presenting himself to to his enemies. But God is still completely in charge. And I think that's demonstrated in, in the passage in Luke that talks about this, because in Luke, when they come up to him, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus, he says, I am he. And what happens? You know, you've got a bunch of people in the crowd Big guys, burly guys, and the Bible says, and, and Luke says in the scriptures, they all just fell to the ground. Boom. Awkward moment. They're laying on the ground. And then they get back up and they go through the whole thing again. But it, to me, it's like, why is that there? And I think it's, it's like a demonstration of God's complete control over everything that's going on. Even in the process of his arrest, let me show you how powerful you really are. And you're laying on the ground. But they go on. You have Judas having made his arrangement with those seeking to kill Jesus and having given instructions on the signal that he was going to give, having been assigned a mob to take with him. You have Judas going, approaching Jesus, has to have a signal. It's dark. 
It's really dark. It's in the night. They probably have torches, but it's dark, probably darker than the CGS parking lot at night. Dark. He approaches Jesus. He has a signal so they'll know which one it is in the dark because, and there's not, Jesus hasn't been on television. He hasn't been on the big screen. Perhaps the people didn't know, the mob didn't know which one was Jesus. They didn't have his face memorized. There weren't posters up of who he was. And so Judas goes and he approaches Jesus and he betrays him with a kiss. And that's the pivotal moment for Judas because, you know, his work. That's his work. See? Pivotal moment for Judas. And from that point on, you wonder when his, you wonder when the sorrow starts to well up in him. You wonder when the fear starts to come up in him. You wonder right then at that moment if he's not thinking, how can I undo this? Right then. Because you know he goes to seek to undo it, and he's not, he's not able to. And you have the mob, an unlikely assemblage of people. You have Roman soldiers, Jews there representing the Jewish leadership. There's, I don't think there were any actual of the Jewish leaders there, but we don't know doesn't say. We know that the high priest's servant was there, Malchus. He was the one that lost his ear. They came to get Jesus. They came bringing clubs and swords. (coughs) And Jesus talks to them and he says, Why now? It's not like I haven't been available. I've been out in the temple teaching every day, been available. Why now? Why come this way? Why come at night? Why the covert operation? I mean, if you had a murderer loose in the city, and he was out in the courts of the streets, you know, in the marketplace buying stuff, and you knew where he was, Would you wait until nighttime to get together to try to go pick him up? Of course, he didn't say that, but that's the implication. Why now? Why now? Well, prophecy had to be fulfilled. That's one of the things we're going to see over and over in this. Jesus had to be numbered with the malefactors, and this is one of the ways he was numbered. But also... These men were doing a wicked deed, and they had to do it in the dark. That's what we do. We like to cover our wickedness. We like to do it under the cover of darkness. That's why the deeds are called dark deeds. So you have the mob. They're there supporting behind Judas. And then you have Jesus. And then who's there with Jesus? Who's there supporting Jesus? Well, you have the disciples. And the disciples have just woke up from sleeping or prayer sleep. Any of you know understand prayer sleep? Okay. They've just woke up from prayer sleep or sleeping, and they find themselves suddenly at this critical point in their discipleship training, something that they didn't realize. Suddenly they're in the face of a big deal, a mob, 
Judas, what are you doing, Judas? Leading a mob. Jesus, they are waking up fast, you know, finding out where their sword is and, you know, getting ready to posture themselves. And Peter takes out his sword. I think it's John that records Peter is the one that takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. Jesus heals his ear, says, Peter, put the sword away. This isn't how we're going to fight. He says, don't you know that I could just ask my father. He would send 12 legions of angels, 12 legions of angels to come. The words of the prophets have to be fulfilled. The words of the prophets have to be fulfilled. I said earlier that I want to concentrate on the disciples this morning and what was happening in their minds because we're going to learn more from them in our application today. And so let's take that time now and concentrate on them. These disciples had been with Jesus for a long time. And throughout the course of his ministry, they had seen a lot of power. They'd seen a lot of things happen. But there were times when Jesus would say things to them that didn't just register. And I'm not talking about when he would say things in parables, because sometimes he would say things in parables and the disciples didn't understand, just like everybody else didn't understand. But he would explain things to the disciples sometimes, right? But there were times when Jesus would say things to them that were explicit. They weren't cloudy. They weren't... They were, they were very, very explicit. And several times in the Gospels, Jesus told the disciples, and I would say you could, you could actually say many times in the Gospels, as they were following him, Jesus told the disciples about his betrayal, about his arrest, his trial, his conviction, his, his uh, being beaten, and his death, and his resurrection. Several times. But it's interesting that for some reason, certainly because the purposes of God had to be accomplished, but also in the, in the reality of their lives, in the reality of the hearts of the disciples, they were unable or unwilling to understand. They were either resistant to what he would say in these times when he would talk this way, or they were, they were confused about what he was saying. So, so at one point in Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and, uh, and he tells them, he says, uh, uh, he began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God, forbid it, forbid it Lord, this shall never happen to you. And this is the point where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This should never happen to you. Peter was quite resistant to the idea. In Mark chapter 9, we read about the transfiguration. And Jesus is on the mountain with uh, Peter and James and John. And who shows up? But Moses and Elijah, and the men are amazed by it. And, of course, they were coming down from the mountain, and Jesus said, Don't tell anyone what you've seen 
until the Son of Man rose from the dead. It says they seized on that statement. I don't know if that means they grabbed it or if they froze up. But they seized on that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Later on in the chapter, they're back with the other disciples. And he says to them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. This isn't a cloudy thing. Very specific, very uh, explicit. But it says they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. What was the understanding of the disciples? At the time, what was going on in their minds? What were they like? What were they thinking about the work they were doing? What were they thinking about the business that they were about? Well, we have other references to things that they said at certain times, and I'm going to concentrate on the ones that are more aggressive or militant. At one point, Jesus is not received well, and so what do they suggest to him? Not received, but well by a a city or people. So what do they suggest? Let's call down fire. What do you think? Then we'll go to Taco Bell. Let's call down fire on them and just burn them up. Other points, we see the disciples as they're following Jesus. And they're walking and they're arguing with each other. And then we find out what the argument's about. They're arguing about who's the greatest. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Then they're arguing about seating arrangements and where I'm going to sit and where you're going to sit. Putting themselves forward because, you know, they're, they're into this kingdom thing. They're into this movement that's, that they're a part of. Even in the garden. They brought the weapons, right? They had swords. They brought the weapons. They thought there was going to be a military takeover. There were a lot of things that they participated in all through the time they were ministering with Jesus. But all that time that they were participating in teaching and in baptisms and in miracles as Jesus would give them power to do it, all that time, they were still in the back of their minds, we're going to take over. We're going to take over. We're going to be in power. Three of them had been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had seen Moses and Elijah there. Now, Moses had been used by God to do some pretty powerful stuff. And, and you probably, most of you know, some of the things Moses did. And if you were an enemy of Moses, it wasn't good for you. Because you were probably an enemy of God in that case. And so what happened to the enemies of Moses? Well, you know what happened to Pharaoh. He was crushed. The armies of Egypt were crushed. Egypt as a nation was crushed. 
Even as they went out, as Israel went out into the wilderness and started their sojourning, what happened when people would try to oppose Moses or or try to usurp his authority, try to gain authority? What would happen in those situations? Well, even his own family members. Uh, Miriam, isn't it, was struck with leprosy. It wasn't good to be an enemy of Moses. This is the guy they saw Jesus with on the mountain. It's right in keeping with their, with their theme about what should be happening with the, with the global plan. Then they saw Elijah. Have you read about Elijah and the things that he did? That God did through him, I should say? Have you read about it? I just want to remind you of one this morning about Ahaziah. Ahaziah, the king, he fell through the lattice and was harmed. And he decided that he would go send his men to inquire of Beelzebub, the demon god of Ekron, as to whether or not he was going to survive his sickness. But God knew about all that. And so God spoke to Elijah, his servant, and God said to Elijah, go and tell these people, intercept them and say, is there no God in Israel that you could inquire of him? So Elijah does. He, he goes and he intercepts uh, uh, Ahaziah's people on their way to inquire of Beelzebub and tells them that and they go back to Ahaziah and, ah- and Ahaziah says well who did this guy look like and they said well he looked like this he's had this on and, and Ahaziah says well that's Elijah so he picks out 50 soldiers he, got, he gets a captain of 50 and he says you go and bring him back here so the captain of 50 goes up and he finds Elijah sitting on the top of the hill and he says to him O man of God, the king says, come down. Do you know what happens next? Elijah says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50. And the scripture records that fire came down from heaven and consumed them, all 51. But is Ahaziah... Turned aside by that? No. He finds another captain and sends 51 more. And this guy comes up to Elijah, 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 Elijah on the hill. And he says, uh, he says, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Got an adverb in there. Quick, quickly. Elijah replied to them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So Ahaziah sent another captain and another 50. But this captain was smart. (laughs) And he feared God. And he came to Elijah and he bowed down on his knees and he begged him and he said, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go ahead with him. You don't have to be afraid. It's a strange change of, a turn of words. I'm sorry. You just watch two, 102 people burn up. Don't be afraid. You know, but 
But it was the reality. Elijah was God's servant. And his enemies came, and they were God's enemies. And this is the man that the disciples saw on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. Moses, Elijah, they knew about these men who had gotten burned up. You know they knew. They knew the Old Testament. They'd been with Jesus. They'd seen his power. He had let them wield it on occasion, sending them out to do miracles. They had become somewhat of a force to be reckoned with. The Messiah has come. He's setting up camp. Sure, once in a while he says something a little strange about betrayal and beating and death and three days and rising again. But other than that, things are great. We don't know what that's all about, but things are really trucking along. We're just glad the whole enterprise is moving forward powerfully. Recently, he's even been bolder. He's been taking on the leadership, those corrupt guys. I'll bet he's going to make his big move soon. And he does. Jesus makes his big move. He makes his big move in Gethsemane. It was there that he physically turns himself over to his enemies to accomplish the purposes of God. He makes his big move. But you know, the disciples, they had all their eggs in another basket, so to speak. They were counting on something completely different. We know that from the Scripture, and I'm going to get to it in a minute, but they were counting on something completely different. And suddenly, in the garden, a realization dawns on them. They thought Jesus was going to whip up on the mob. He started talking about legions of angels, and they were saying, Yeah! That's a, that's a legion for each one of us. This is going to be a slaughter. When do you think the realization dawned on them? I think it was just at a second. <laughs> you know how it happens to you and I sometimes? When suddenly we realize, I just passed the traffic cop at 70 miles an hour and a you know, and it's like this big well-up comes up in us, you know. I think it's when Jesus said this. He said, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? He told them to put the swords away. He said, I could call the legions of angels, but how then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? And the basket that they had their eggs in comes crashing down. All the eggs are broken all over the floor. They're, they're scared to death. They flee. They're scattered. A couple of them follow at a distance to watch the proceedings. Peter goes through his period of denial. Perhaps in their minds they're replaying what he said in the garden, the scriptures being fulfilled, what's that? 
maybe they're thinking a little bit about all those times he said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. Maybe they start to think about that a little bit, but they're just completely disillusioned. Everything came crashing down. And, and we know that they still didn't get it. Even then, they still didn't get it. It was a dark time. It was a dark time for them. He's crucified. He's buried. Three days he raises from the dead. And two of them are walking on a road to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And suddenly Jesus is with them. But they don't know who he is because he's kept them from recognizing him miraculously. So he's just there kind of, (laughs) I don't know. You wonder about why, you know. But it's interesting because it's kind of like this this uh, plan, this structured plan of how he how he appears to the disciples. And this is one of the places that he comes. And he's talking with them and he's walking with them and they're kind of sad or they're very sad and they're looking sad. And he's asking them what's going on. And they're saying, don't you know what's happened? And they explain to him what's happened. And then he... Then he says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You think about him in the garden talking to them and saying, look, this has got to fulfill the prophets. We've got to fulfill the prophets here. Don't you get it? I told you way back. I've been telling you I was explicit about this. I told you I was going to die. They were going to bury me. I was going to raise again from the dead. In the garden, I tell you explicitly, the prophets, you, gotta, you have to see the prophets fulfilled. It's God's plan. It's not going to happen any other way. This is how it's going to happen. Don't you see it? He meets them on the road after his resurrection. They're saying, you know, even some of the women are saying that his body's gone and we're wondering what's going on there and what's happening. And he says, you foolish men. You're so slow of heart. You won't believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Look, 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 look. Right down the line. And then after they broke some bread, they knew who he was and then he left. He disappeared. Later... They're with, the, he's, they're with the disciples, disciples all together. He appears to them and he says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, when I was with you, I said, all these things have to be fulfilled. I kept saying it. He says it over and over, many, many ways and explicitly. Then he opened their minds... And I don't know, this might be the moment right here. It says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And this may be the moment. This is the first half of two parts that have to, that have to happen with these men. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. 
and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So he explained it to them. Finally, they understood it. Finally. They got it here. They got it here. But there was something else needed. There was something else needed for them to get beyond that point. They'd finally come to terms with throwing out their petty, carnal, short-sighted, worldly, ungodly expectations. They got that. He explained to them, it's not about what you thought it was about. Your eggs were in the wrong basket. You finally understand. He opened their minds to it. But they were still without power. So in the same passage, he says, now you wait. You wait. The promise is coming. And what's the promise? God made a promise through the prophet Joel. It's another prophecy. It's just this incredible uh, tapestry of the hand of God in all of redemptive history. And you think about it, you see this thing, and Jesus, see, Jesus sees all of it, and they're just like, okay, well, we get it now, but we don't have anything, we don't have any courage, we're like scared to death. We get it, but we're just scared to death. And Jesus says, well, just wait for the promise. Just wait for the promise. And then what happens? Pentecost. Boom. These men are totally different. You read Peter's sermon at Pentecost and you think he's not the guy he was when he was calling down fire on the people. And he's not the guy he was in the garden and when he was denying Christ. He's different because he's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does he say to the people in the sermon? He says, well, this is what was promised through the prophet Joel. And he said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him and in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. (laughs) Peter never got that before. Before Jesus opened his mind to it. He didn't get it. And now Peter's preaching it. Preaching it. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. Now the disciples were a force to be reckoned with. Not a force that would take over and destroy the Roman Empire, although, in fact, it would fall to Christians. Not a force to take on the Jewish leaders and the corrupt Jewish worship, but, in fact, it would fall. And the the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish people would come to Christ in droves and submit themselves to him. But that's not the force that these men had become. They had become a force fulfilling the prophecy of their master when Jesus said to Peter, just before Peter had said, you know, may it never be, God forbid that you'd ever be killed. Just before 
Peter said that. And just before Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, Jesus said, ask, uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter had had a, a little poof, a little epiphany of understanding, spiritual understanding. And I say to you, Jesus says, that, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And so this is the fulfillment. The, the apostles powerfully preaching on the day of Pentecost and Jesus' words, his prophecy saying, I'm going to build my church on these guys. And then you have the picture in the book of Revelation of, of John seeing the church coming out of heaven. And what is the foundation stones? Do you remember? It says there are 12 foundation stones. That's the apostles. The apostles of the Lamb, the 12 stones holding up the entire church. Beautiful, beautiful picture. But that's what they were transformed into. That was a force to be reckoned with because it was the force God had intended. It was His plan. Well, we need to apply this to ourselves, and I want to make two points of application. One is that we have to set our minds on the things of God. Colossians 3 Verses 1 and 2 says, uh, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. My interpretation of that is, get your eggs in the right basket. Get your eggs in the right basket. The disciples spent all this time with their eggs in the wrong basket, and it was destructive for them. What makes us think that we're not capable of being slow of heart and foolish? Do you think we're not? Maybe it's just me. But think about what, we, what kind of baskets we put our eggs in. You know, we say, oh, I've been a Christian for 25 years. I used to counsel. I was a counselor at the Billy Graham Crusades. I've seen power. American Christians... We're a force to be reckoned with. We're setting up camp. We'll make sure President Obama will see that we're not to be ignored. Sure, once in a while the Holy Spirit says something strange about suffering, confiscation of properties, persecution, opposition, death. We don't really understand what he's talking about there. Don't want to talk about that too much. We're a force to be reckoned with. We're just glad the whole enterprise is moving along so powerfully. Recently, we've even been bolder. We've got an Indiana license plate that says, In God We Trust. See how we're gaining. We have a creation museum. See how we're gaining. We're going to send a red letter envelope campaign to Obama. See how we're gaining. Am I opposed to sending red letters to Obama? No. But I'm telling you that all the while the disciples were doing the things that Jesus told them to do, all the while they were casting out demons and healing people and baptizing people and preaching, all that while they had their eggs in a different basket. They were hoping in something completely different. And it's just as, just as, we're just as capable of doing that as they were. Absolutely. You and I are just as capable of doing that. 
The kingdom of God isn't going to come about through license plates and letter campaigns and creation museums. It's moving along powerfully. I'll bet Jesus makes his big move soon. Tim LaHaye says it could be any time. Could happen any time. Yeah. What if God made his big move in November? Do you ever think about that? What if God made his big move in November? Setting up things like he wanted to set them up. Kind of like the garden. Maybe Christians in America will never see or again enjoy the ease, the calm, the comfort of the golden days of evangelicalism when all the pharaohs knew who Billy Graham was. Maybe we'll never see that again. What if God started things rolling? What basket are your eggs in? Jesus said, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? Do you think there are no scriptures talking about how it must happen with you and I? That it's all going to be a bed of ease, flowery, how's the song, how's the hymn go? On flowery beds of ease. Give me the line before. Must I? On flowery beds of ease. Yeah, yeah. Crash. The basket hits the floor. The eggs are spilled everywhere, broken in pieces. Could your plan support you being called to share communion in the catacombs? To have your homes confiscated. This is just common for God's kingdom. And as I say this to you, and as you think about the thought of being stripped of your possessions, you have the same thoughts I do. You think, oh, can I do that? Am I, is that possible? How can I do that? And I'll tell you what, it's the same thing the disciples were feeling when Jesus finally opened up their mind to the reality. How can I do that? Is it possible? And what did Jesus say? You have to have power from God. You have to have power from God. And so it is with us. The second point of application is we must be filled with the Spirit. We have a command in the Scripture to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5. I have a pet peeve. And my pet peeve is that... uh, I'll try to use this to to show what the difference is with the disciples in this process. My pet peeve is uh, that in our bathroom along the ledge of the bathtub or in the shower, we typically have uh, multiple bottles. Do you have these bottles? And so we have bottles in their body wash, bubble bath, bath oil, liquid soap, conditioner for your hair, and then shampoo. Now, which one am I pretty much exclusively interested in? I want the the shampoo. That's what I'm looking for, right? And uh, and and I don't care if it's essence of strawberry, blueberry, bubblegum, pomegranate, jade, 
If it's moisturizing, drying, melting, frying, if it's for dry hair, oily hair, normal hair, long hair, short hair, ugly hair, I don't care. I want the thing that says shampoo. But you know what these companies do? They write shampoo on the bottle somewhere. And it's always the, the third or seventh size font down from the top. And I'm getting hard of reading. So I'm like, shampoo, shampoo. I have this dream of starting a company of making shampoo for men with big old 64-ounce bottles, black, with bright neon lettering, 40-mile-an-hour shampoo, and that's it. Nothing else on the bottle. That's how it should be. I have daughters so that you have to have bubble gum. Well, what was the difference between the disciples before and after? The difference was that when they had the Holy Spirit, everything was completely obvious about them. Before, you didn't know what they were about. There could have been any number of things you could have assigned to the disciples before that. Right? Any number of things. But after they received the Holy Spirit, after Jesus had opened their minds to the truth about what the kingdom of God was about, what did you know about the disciples? You knew what they were about. And they were different. Powerful. Powerful. Shampoo. That's it. That's what we're about. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. How transparently clear they had become. So what about you and I? We have the promise of God to us that He will give us His Holy Spirit. He said, if you had a father... A father who is an evil man, he wouldn't give his kid a snake if he asked for bread. How much more am I willing, says the father, to give my Holy Spirit to you when you ask? Opening up our minds. Having our minds renewed by the Word of God. Understanding what He has called us to be. It's all his plan. This morning, this is his plan. This is his word. The scriptures are being fulfilled. The words of the prophets are being fulfilled right here. So where will you put your eggs Will you call on God and ask him? Will we call on God and ask him to give us his Holy Spirit? Let's pray.